This week, pinning down China's immense emissions. Chinese cumulative emissions actually uh, 12 gigaton less than previously understood. And 10 years after Hurricane Katrina, what can the rest of the world learn? Before other parts of the world get affected in such a, a devastating way, I would like to see some thinking about how do we make coastal areas more resilient. Plus, can genes leap sideways into our cells? This is the Nature Podcast for August 20th, 2015. I'm Adam Levy, and I'm Kerry Smith. Talking about climate change without mentioning China is like talking about pizza without mentioning Italy. China's been the world's largest emitter of CO2 for almost a decade, and its emissions have kept rising, mostly thanks to huge increases in the burning of coal. Later this year, policymakers from around the world will meet in Paris to make a climate deal. Before the meeting, countries are pledging targets to curb their emissions, but that implies we know what these emissions are, and for China. We don't. We know their emissions are big, but there is huge uncertainty in just how big. Now, an international group of researchers have got together to try to arrive at a definitive answer. I spoke with Dabo Guan from the University of East Anglia to find out what the team learnt. To our best knowledge, and also can we can say this is the best knowledge in the whole research field. We estimate the Chinese emissions from 1990s to 2013. And、uh, over the roughly 23 years, their emissions cumulatively is 12 gigaton less than previously estimated by the IPCC. So、uh, it's about 15 percent of the annual Chinese emissions. 15 percent sounds like you know a really big amount, especially when you're considering emissions on such a big scale as China's. What was the main reason for the difference in these results? We surveyed about five thousand coal mines in China, and、uh, they they get the samples from those coal mines, and the main difference is coming from、uh, the international、uh, agencies. They actually believe that China burn the similar quality of coal as in the U.S. and the and the EU, but in fact. China burn a lot of the low quality of coal, such as brown coal and other. To burn those type of coals, they actually produce less CO two emissions than than burn the high quality coal. Were you surprised by this result, or did you expect that the emissions may have been smaller than had previously been estimated? As a researcher, I didn't,、um, um, as, you know, I wasn't surprised for that, because、uh, there was actually a gap. For the from methodology、uh, perspective, methodological perspective, not only the developing country, also developed countries, they don't really think about co-、uh, quality of fuels when they count for CO two emissions. So further further effort need to be spill over to other developing countries to make the whole、uh, emission trend correct and accurate globally. The quality of、uh, the fuels are the key. Missing point right now in the international field, both in the scientific research as well as in the political battles. 
Now, of course, this result doesn't exist in a vacuum. The Paris climate talks are coming up and the global community is really scrutinising CO2 emissions of all countries, but I suppose especially China because China's emissions are so large. Could this result change perception of China's emissions, do you think? Uh, fundamentally, it wouldn't change the fact that Chinese is the major, uh, the, the leading emitters in the world. There's no doubt about that. But we know now what the Chinese emissions are. And, uh, and if you set the carbon emission peak uh, in 2030, or you set the carbon intensity target, those type of policy targets is, has to be based on accurate emission estimates. So we provide this baseline and all the, uh, the policy in the future can base on uh, our uh, best estimates. So do these results affect how the pledges China has made will be viewed and evaluated? I wouldn't say significantly, but uh, they would somehow, for example, over the 20 years period, Chinese cumulative emissions actually uh, 12 gigaton less than previously understand. So that gives some of the carbon space uh, for further development for China. Hopefully we, we, in the near future, we would have uh, um, some other papers to talk about the impact of such misunderstanding of Chinese emissions over the last, let's say, 20 years to the global carbon cycles or to the science scientific field. That was Dabo Guan from the University of East Anglia. Check out the whole paper at nature.com forward slash nature. And there's a new story on the paper at nature.com forward slash news. Coming up, protecting coastal regions from cyclones and how to learn from Hurricane Katrina. But first, it's time for the research highlights. Here's Sharmini Bundel. Wave goodbye to beef burgers if you want to ease climate change. That's the suggestion from a study of emissions produced by beef farming. Sure, some farming methods are better than others. Beef reared on pasture produces fewer greenhouse gases than feedlot systems, where cattle are raised in smaller areas on corn and grains. That's as long as you don't cut down trees to make the pasture. But the global appetite for beef is projected to rise, so even pasture-fed beef in quantity will still pack a sizeable climate footprint. Find the study in Environmental Research Letters. When we dream during sleep, our eyes move from side to side, a bit like when we're awake and scanning a scene. Does this hint that we're visually scanning our dream scenes too, or is it just a coincidence? Patients undergoing brain surgery had electrodes implanted in visual brain areas and measured when they were asleep and awake. The activity patterns were similar when they were awake and looking at a scene versus when they were dreaming. The patterns could be a distinct sign of dreaming rather than a sign of general brain activity. Nature Communications has the report. It's been 10 years since Hurricane Katrina formed over the Gulf of Mexico and made landfall in New Orleans. 10 years is long enough for many people to have found their feet again including the region's famous musician community. But it's been a long, hard slog. You don't play the blues unless you've experienced the blues. And majority of the people here, including myself, we've experienced the blues. These southern regions of the US, the states of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, they were prepared for flooding. But Hurricane Katrina overwhelmed the defences, 
causing over 1,800 deaths and $100 billion of damage. Economist Edward Barbier has been helping Louisiana plan its recovery. He's written about it in a comment piece, and he's also identified 15 countries where coastal protection is even more urgent. I asked him about Katrina's legacy. Immediately after the hurricane season in 2005, the Louisiana State Legislature set up the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority, and uh, this authority was tasked with implementing a series of five-year coastal master plans. And um, the last master plan in 2012 was the most ambitious because it was a series of restoration and coastal protection projects with a total budget of $50 billion that would be implemented over the next 50 years. But as you say in the comment piece, the focus isn't necessarily so much on trying to reverse what happened and go back to the inverted commas good old days. It's much more about being resilient, isn't it, to something like this happening again, adapting to the fact that this probably will happen again. Yes, I think the most important thing to note about the Louisiana Master Plan strategy is that the real aim is resilience. Resilience against short-lived natural disasters that have immediate and often extreme impacts, such as flooding and storm surges from hurricanes, as well as resilience against long-term climatic Uh, changes that have gradual impacts, such as sea level rise, saline intrusion, and erosion. So more important than the details of the plan of what projects are implemented where is the fact that this is a new way of of thinking about a long-term management of coast, and it's one that needs to be uh, adopted elsewhere in the world. When Barbier says this, he's thinking of regions where a lot of poor people live in risky coastal areas. If something like Katrina happened in any of these the consequences would be even more devastating than in Louisiana. High on this list is Bangladesh. Half the country's population lives less than 10 metres above sea level. Shushmita Dasgupta studies Bangladesh's coast. She's at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. Bangladesh, as you know, is the most cyclone-prone country in the world. Five severe cyclones struck between 1995 and 2014. And when a cyclone strikes, inundation from storm surges is the biggest threat to lives and properties. But climate change is really aggravating the situation. And what we have realized is more than 3 million poor, even in the current climate, without climate change, is expo- uh, are exposed to cyclone risks. So the situation is very dire indeed. Like Louisiana, Bangladesh already has cyclone protection measures in place, cyclone shelters, boulders to stop the storm surges, and emergency warning systems. But they're going to need to do more. The country is not really fully adapted to the cyclonic, uh, cyclonic risks. Okay? Whatever uh, infrastructure they have in place to protect coastal population from cyclonic storm surges as well as tidal waves, it is not adequate to fully mitigate the damages, even without climate change. And our estimate indicates an investment of approximately US dollar 2.5 billion will be necessary to overcome the deficit. All this and they're still recovering from two giant cyclones in 2007 and again two years later. After Cedar, there was another uh, cyclone that did strike in uh, 2009-10. It was Isla. And it did breach some of the dikes and people were living with, like, you know, um, temporary shelters, uh, housing covered with polythene sheets. 
and even after five six years if you go there you would see refugees sitting there but you will find that most of the working age male and female migrated from these households to make ends meet and who are left behind are basically their dependents children and elderly and poverty is staggering and once a severe cyclone strikes it takes a decade to recover from that cyclone and sometimes some people do not recover at all countries like bangladesh won't be able to do this by themselves says barbier he wants to earmark at least 3 billion dollars of climate adaptation funds for coastal protection in the most at-risk countries then when something like katrina happens somewhere else those regions too can be set on the path to recovery just as Louisiana and New Orleans have been. What I would like to see is that before other parts of the world get uh, affected in such uh, a devastating way, I would like to see some thinking about how do we prevent that, how do we make our systems, coastal systems and coastal areas more resilient. Louisiana and New Orleans still bears the scars of of Katrina and the scars are not just the physical ones uh, the emotional scars and and the the great deal of trauma that was engendered by this huge and devastating event um, it's still there among the people guys that were staying away I'm sure they died of broken hearts because they couldn't get back to New Orleans New Orleans is a very seductive place it's like being in love with a woman and she she quit you. <laughs> and so your heart, your heart broken. Thanks to AFP footage for the audio of New Orleans musicians. You also heard from Shushmita Dasgupta on Bangladesh and before her Edward Barbier, whose comment article is at nature.com slash news. The news isn't very far away, but before we get there, a story of borrowed genes. Organisms usually inherit genes from their parents, vertically down the generations. But sometimes genes can arrive sideways. They sneak in from more distantly related organisms, like when a virus injects genes into a bacterium. These are called horizontal gene transfers, and they happen all the time in bacteria and other simple cells. But in more complex cells? Researchers are confident of just a couple of incidents. One, mitochondria. Those little energy-generating packages in complex eukaryotic cells, they originated some one and a half billion years ago when a single-celled organism swallowed a bacterium and then started using its genes to make energy. The second event? A plant cell getting friendly with some algae and ending up with chloroplasts, the plant cell version of a solar panel. Many scientists are happy with the idea that this gene borrowing only happened these two times long ago. But some studies have claimed, quite controversially, that gene swapping is actually more common in eukaryotes. Now Bill Martin and his team from the University of Dusseldorf in Germany have been weighing in. Nature reporter Ewan Calloway gave Bill a call to learn which side he's on. First, a little more on borrowed genes. Some organelles, that is subcellular structures, of eukaryotic cells arose from a symbiosis of two independent cells where one came to live within the other, endo within symbiosis living together. So in eukaryotic cells, those cells with DNA packages inside of them, scientists have two main case studies. One is mitochondria, the other are chloroplasts. How long ago do these unions occur? For that, we have to look at the fossil record and 
There, the fossil record speaks a relatively clear message, and that is that the first fossils that are unquestionably eukaryotic, larger, more decorated, more complex, arise about 1.5 to 1.6 billion years ago. And the first unequivocally plant fossils, 1.2 billion years old. So we're talking about a third of Earth's history back that uh, eukaryotes arose. So we've got these these unions that occurred one to two billion years ago, you're saying. But I understand that some scientists claim that eukaryotes might have nabbed lots more uh, genes from, from other organisms, from microbes. How might this work? When we talk about transfers from prokaryotes to eukaryotes, there are basically two flavors. There's the old traditional flavor, endosymbiotic gene transfer. That old concept of endosymbiotic gene transfer has been out there for a while. Then came genome sequences, lots and lots of data that we were not really prepared for. Suddenly we could make trees from just all sorts of things that uh, we could find in the databases. And those trees started giving us very, very strange sets of branches and eukaryotes appearing where we didn't really expect them to. And that led to the view that eukaryotes have been acquiring genes from bacteria all throughout their history, not just at the origins of organelles, but all throughout their history. But the problem is, if that's true, then there have to be cumulative effects. That means that different eukaryotes should be acquiring genes all the time, and that throughout their 1.5 billion year history. That means that these different lineages of eukaryotes should, in the long run, acquire very different collections of genes. What we have done is provided a first genome-wide test of that prediction using several dozen eukaryotic genomes and several thousand prokaryotic genomes. And what we find is that the gene acquisitions that we see in eukaryotes correspond to the origins of organelles. So the very things that make eukaryotes special, these organelles, are foreign imports, right? It's really a shame that it doesn't happen more often. It's kind of an appealing idea that we could pick and choose genes from other parts of the family tree. Why do you find that appealing? Because <laughs> that would mean that when we when we go to the supermarket and then uh, and and go shopping, then we have to say, well, be careful. There are genes in there, <laughs> and uh, we don't we don't acquire genes from from our food. Whereas the the bacteria, they do. And this, this has to do with the very deeply rooted differences in the, the strategies with which prokaryotes and eukaryotes are successful. Eukaryotes solved their energy and carbon problems, how do I get a meal and how do I obtain energy from it, at their origin. That problem being solved, the eukaryotes then attained success via their morphological and behavioral complexity, all the, the interesting things that prokaryotes don't do. What prokaryotes are successful at is biochemistry, at metabolism, making a living in the environment. They don't need or require any complex morphology for that. What they require are genes. That's quite remarkable, actually, just to, to think that, you know, everything that we think of as, as complex life is so uniform. And, and it's, it's actually a very profound observation. On the other hand, it also has the imprint of endosymbiosis written all over it. One single acquisition, never a great modification on that theme since. And uh, stasis in terms of the genes that uh, support the core energy and, and uh, uh, carbon uh, needs of the cell. We're converging on 
a surprising set of mutually consistent observations in uh, microbial evolution. These are exciting times. That was Bill Martin talking to Ewan Calloway. The paper is at nature.com slash nature. Now it's time for our news chat and Celeste Beaver, Chief News Editor, joins us in the studio. Hi, Celeste. Hi. A few weeks ago, Davide Castelvecchi was sat where you're sat now with some exciting superconductor news. Here's what he had to say. The um, smelly rotten egg gas, hydrogen sulfide, apparently when you cool it down and you, and you compress it to something like a million atmospheres of pressure, the, the gas becomes a superconductor. That means it conducts electricity without wasting any energy. So that superconductor hydrogen sulfide conducts electricity, but at minus 70 degrees Celsius. The paper's now out in nature. But what's actually happened in the meantime, Celeste, since that paper was first published on Archive? The first sort of tranche of results reported by the team was in December on Archive. Second lot came in June. So although the paper's only published this week in nature, the research community has had plenty of time to have a look at it, get very excited about it, do various calculations and follow up experiments to try and figure out what this seemingly amazing result really means. And to date, are there any suggestions of how this might be working? That's one of the key things they're trying to figure out. They're both trying to reproduce the result and figure out how it might work if it is really superconducting at this high temperature, and I should say high temperature for superconductivity of minus 70 degrees. They think it's working in quite a surprising way. Up until this discovery, the uh, type of material that conducted at the highest temperature was a very exotic material known as a cuprate um, that used uh, what they call an exotic mechanism of superconductivity. Hydrogen sulfide, by contrast, is seems to be superconducting at an even higher temperature and yet doing it with a mechanism that they call conventional superconductivity. This involves driving electrons to form these things called Cooper pairs. And once they do that, uh, they can kind of whiz through the material without creating any resistance. And has this result actually been verified yet? It's all well and good for one lab to say, well, we found a new superconductor. But have other people been able to check that it does indeed work? So there's two things you look for when you're testing for a superconductor. One is that characteristic um, drop in resistance. And the other is something called the Meissner effect, which has to do with um, how the substance reacts to a magnetic field. So there's um, a group in Japan who've seen that loss in resistance, but have yet to observe the Meissner effect. And then there's three Chinese groups and one um, US group that we contacted, and none of them have been able to confirm either of the two. But that's not necessarily a bad sign. It's, it's hard stuff that they're trying to do. But that hasn't stopped people trying to build the theory and suggest other materials which might be able to work in a similar way. Yeah, that's right. So this discovery of it in hydrogen sulfide, you know, rather than these cuprates, has also sparked a lot of interest in other hydrogen compounds instead of sulfur. And of course, the ideal goal for all of this would be to have a superconductor that works at temperatures like room temperature. Yeah, that's where they're all going because that would... Uh, just make it a lot more easy, a lot easier to handle. Um, and also, I mean, you don't have to expend vast amounts of energy keeping it at a low temperature. And if we were to be able to get superconductors to work at room temperatures, what would we actually want to do with them? So one option is improving the way that we generate and transmit electricity, potentially to make big energy savings because we wouldn't be losing anything else in resistance. Another is to give a big boost to the current uses of superconductivity, such as in medical scanners, particle accelerators, where it would just be a lot easier to handle them. And again, potential energy savings through not having to cool them down. 
We'll have to keep an eye out to see how superconductors develop as a result of this. Now, early in the podcast, we mentioned China, and many of our listeners might know that China has recently been awarded the 2022 Winter Olympics. Now, not everyone is thrilled about this. That's right. Shortly after the uh, successful bid was announced, some Chinese biologists got on Weibo, which is a Chinese social networking platform, and they took the plans for the proposed route of the alpine skiing contest and overlaid them on the map of the region. And they discovered that the alpine ski part overlaps with a recently defined nature reserve, which has various kind of rare species, including some orchids. And was this conflict actually mentioned in any of the propositions or plans that came out of the Olympic Planning Committee? It wasn't presented as a conflict, but the nature reserve is mentioned in the International Olympic Committee evaluation report, where it just says that the ski slope will be adjacent to the nature reserve. But carrying on from that... Very recently, a local deputy mayor allegedly announced that the borders of the reserve would be adjusted and then it would no longer overlap with the ski slope and would actually make the reserve 31% larger. But this has still left the original protesters who were posting this stuff on Weibo upset because they say um, that's not good enough. It's not good enough just to uh, um, change the boundary. These laws about creating nature reserves are something that the Chinese government made a big deal about. And the fact that they're changing them could set a precedent for other areas just to be changed at will or because of other interests. And they're very worried about that, perhaps with areas that are even of even more interest to conservationists. Has there been any acknowledgement or response to the posts on Weibo explicitly? No, not explicitly, but uh, the posts have disappeared. Thanks a lot for joining us in the studio, Celeste. And where can listeners find these stories? Why, nature.com forward slash news, of course. That's all we've got time for this week. Over on our YouTube channel, there's a new film about alien plants, otherwise known as invasive species. Kudos to Sharmini Bundell, who's been slashing at rhododendrons to make that film happen. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. 